hear the word of the Lord this morning. After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assemble them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts and the city of the nations fell and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away and no mountains were to be found and great hailstones about 100 pounds each fell from heaven on people and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. As far the reading of God's word, let's pray. Our heavenly father, great and amazing are your deeds, just and true are your ways. Lord, help us to fear you and to glorify your name for you alone are holy and your righteous acts have and will be revealed. Lord, may your word be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Cause its warnings to teach us to be sober-minded and watchful against all that would draw us away from you. And may the promises of your word teach us to be expectant and hopeful for all the grace that is to be revealed in Christ Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. How seriously do you take all the various alert notifications that you get in a given week? We seem to get so many of all different kinds of alerts that it's hard not to develop an alert immunity, as it were. I don't know if you knew this, but almost every day in Florida, sometime between the hours of 10 a.m. and 6 p.m., there is a UV index alert. And I'm guessing that most of you 
have never had a time where you're about to step outside the front door of your home between the hours of 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. and looked at the UV advisory alert on your phone and thought, I better shelter in place. Florida is a very dangerous place to live. Now, on a weekly basis, perhaps you get text message alerts like I get that your PayPal account has been compromised and suspended and you need to click this link immediately. Well, I have never taken one of those seriously and I hope you don't either because most of them come from very ridiculous contact names that are about you know the full alphabet in, in disorder and there are always multiple grammar mistakes in those text messages and therefore you should know it's a scam. Or maybe you got this recent alert the Florida Division of Emergency Management sent out an alert at 4.45 a.m. on a Thursday morning. And I know this because it rudely woke me up at 4.45 a.m. on a Thursday morning. And I went to look at it thinking this, this must be serious. And it turns out it was only a test at 4.45 a.m. on a Thursday morning. Now, I couldn't go back to sleep because I was busy pondering what kind of psychopath sends out a 4.45 a.m. test alert. Turns out, it wasn't even intentional. It was an accident. The, you know, the later that day, the Florida Division of Emergency Management sends out an apology, which I have yet to accept, <laughs> that it was an accident. And so, given the amount of alerts we get, the, the constancy of the alerts we get, the scam alerts we get, the accidental alerts we get, it's hard not to develop the boy who cried wolf syndrome, right? A kind of alert immunity. But then you have an alert like many received last Saturday mid-afternoon. And you realize that there are some alerts that you cannot afford to ignore. Like most of you, last Saturday mid-afternoon, I got a tornado alert. And I didn't pay any special attention to it. I didn't pay it any mind. But then the next day, you see the pictures from US1 and PGA Boulevard you see the damage that that tornado caused that was only here for 11 minutes, 11 or 12 minutes, and you realize that there are certain alerts that you cannot afford to ignore. There are certain alerts you need to pay careful attention to. The reason I bring that up is because part of the purpose of the book of Revelation is to function like the emergency broadcast system of heaven, alerting us to the seriousness of sin, the widespread nature of deception and allurement and seduction away from the Lord and the severity of God's judgment on both of those things. And so in this section of the book of Revelation, John records for us another series of sevens, the seven bull judgments of God's wrath. We've had a couple of those series. We've, we've had the seven seals opened as the lamb began to open the scroll and unfold God's plan for history. We had the seven trumpet blasts that were sounded warning humanity to turn to the Lord, to turn to Christ. And now we have the seven bowls poured out. As I mentioned before, and I don't want to reiterate kind of everything I've said previously, but my view of Revelation is that these are not laying things out in chronological order as if we're to see the seven seals were opened then, then the seven trumpets happened, then the seven bowls happened. I think they're, they're kind of layered on top of each other. So if you think of like a triple layered cake, these, these seven series kind of repeat the same cycle of history. They're giving us patterns of what is going to permeate life between Christ's first and second coming, and yet each of the series ratchets up the intensity a little bit more than the last one. So for example, in the seven seals that were open, it mentions a quarter of this, a quarter of that, a quarter of this, and it's kind of, it's lighter. 
But then the seven trumpet blasts come, and it's a third of this, a third of that, a third of this. It's ratcheted up even more. Well, now when it comes to the seven bowl judgments, there's no fractions anymore, okay? It's just full-on intense because the Lord is showing that as history is moving toward its culmination point, God takes sin and rebellion and hostility and enmity towards him very seriously. And he is the judge of all the earth. And so God's unfolding plan for history is revealed with increasing intensity, especially as we come to these seven bowl judgments. Now with the outpouring of these bowls of judgment, John is going to alert us to three different truths that we need to pay careful attention to. So the first is this. The outpouring of God's judgment alerts us to the true headquarters, the true command center of this world. Many people are asking this time, where is the place of true power and prominence in this world? Where is it? Well, verses five to eight of chapter 15 serve as an introduction to this section on the bowls of God's judgment. And in the introduction, John makes it very clear where these judgments are coming from and who is in charge of them. So look at verse five and six of chapter 15. It says, after this I looked, and the sanctuary, the temple of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. So John shows the audience revelation, shows us, is a picture of the true temple, the heavenly temple where God's throne room resides. And this is where the bold judgments are coming from. This is where the commission, the decrees that run history are coming from. And so what John is showing us is that the heavenly temple is above all earthly temples and that is the true headquarters of history. That is the true command center of the world. And the reason this is significant, especially to the original audience, was littering the landscape of the Roman Empire were various temples dedicated to various Roman emperors and various Roman gods and goddesses. And each temple in Rome throughout you know, its, its empire functioned kind of like a, a public billboard advertising the might and power and prominence of Rome and their various gods. And so given the prominence and power of Rome at this time especially, many were led to believe that central command, the headquarters of history in the world, was there in Rome. And yet, John helps us look outward and upward. So by once again lifting our eyes to heaven, John shows us the true headquarters of history and the world, and he shows us the throne that is above every throne and the temple that is above every temple. And this is reinforced even further by how John bookends this section. Look at verse 17 of chapter 16. The seventh angel, this is the last, the final, the number of completion, fullness, poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. So the place of power, the throne that decrees and directs history is in heaven, not on earth. And why this is important for us is we can often lose sight of this, this fact that the central command, the headquarters of history is in heaven. And we can start to think that who's really in charge, the, the true place of power and prominence, well, it's in Washington, D.C., or it's, it's in the Federal Reserve, or it's in Hollywood, or it's, it's in the mainstream media, or it's, it's in the universities that have this or that agenda and ideology. Now, we don't wanna be naive to the influence of these places that they can exert over culture for good or for evil. We don't wanna be retreatists. And yet, at the same time, we do not want to ever forget that our God is in the heavens 
and he does whatever he pleases. That our God is the one who looks at the nations who rage and plot against him, and he doesn't worry like we do. He's not given to despair like we are. He sits in the heavens and he laughs at the nations that rage against him, at the institutions that would seek to undermine his law and his ways because the Lord knows that their day is approaching. And so the perfect eternal serenity of God knowing his own plan helps calm our own kind of weary, worrisome, despairing hearts. As one author has said, there ought to be no attribute more comforting to God's children than God's sovereignty, his rule over all things. Under the most difficult circumstances, in the most severe trials, our heavenly father ordains all things, not a hair from our head turns white or black, not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from the will of your heavenly father. Our God overrules all things and he will make all things new. That is the pillow that the Christian lays their head on every day. So the fact that these bowls of judgment come from the throne room of God's heavenly temple alerts us to where the true headquarters of the world lies. Well, secondly, the outpouring of God's judgment alerts us to the purifying of the sin-cursed world. Almost all of the seven bowls are poured out on a different domain or sphere of the created world. So if you look at chapter 16, verse 2, the first bowl is poured out on the earth. Then you go to verse 3. The second bowl is poured out on the sea. If you look at verse 4, the third bowl is poured out on fresh water. Then verse 8, the fourth bowl is poured out on the sun. And finally, you jump ahead to the seventh bowl in verse 17, and it's poured out into the air. And notice after the seventh bowl, there is this statement of completion, of finality. It is done. Now, as I was studying this and reading this, I couldn't help but think of how this sounds somewhat similar to Genesis 1, right? In Genesis 1, you have God speaking his word of command, and he brings forth the beauty, the order, the design of the different domains of creation. And he works with them subsequently over seven days, filling and forming this earth. And when he's done with his work, he makes a statement of finality and completion. It was all very good. So there's this similar parallel between these seven bowls and creation. And yet there's, there's a clear difference as well. Genesis 1 is about God building up and beautifying, forming and filling this world. Revelation 16 is, sounds like the opposite. It's more like a, a demolition project. It's more like a, a disassembly project of creation. What accounts for this major difference between building and beautifying and demolishing and disassembling? Well, it's everything in between. It is mankind's rejection and rebellion against its creator and all the consequences and effects that flood out from that. God made all things very good. But even as you see in Genesis 6 with the flood, mankind's sin has made it so things are very bad, as it were. And sin has, as it were, brought a curse on God's good creation. In fact, in Romans 8, Paul says creation itself, the natural world that God made, is groaning for its release from its bondage to decay. It's longing for redemption. 
Just as we long for redemption, as our, as our bodies waste away, as we see the sin in our own hearts continue to rear its ugly head, creation itself longs for redemption because of the consequence and effects of sin. Now to think about the consequences and effects of sin on creation, think about it like this. Have you ever had the experience where you're going up to grab a dessert? You see there's, there's a key lime pie that you really want and there's someone in front of you and then they sneeze without covering their mouth over the dessert. What have they done? They've spoiled the dessert. Something good, very good, is now very bad. Sin is a bit like that. It has a spoiling effect on God's good creation. Or kids, you've probably done this before. You've drawn a beautiful picture. You've worked really hard. Everything's right. You've got the colors right, the shades right. And you leave it out because you want to show it off later. And then one of your younger siblings comes and they find the one permanent marker in the house and they scribble all over that drawing. They have vandalized your beautiful work of art. Well, sin is a bit like that. It has a vandalizing effect on God's good creation. Or imagine a beautiful house that gets overrun by termites. The structures are corroded because of the influence of those termites. Well, sin is a bit like that. It has a corroding effect on the things that God has made originally good. And so what we need to understand as we look at the whole storyline of the Bible is that the present world as it stands now is not what it's going to be when Christ returns because it has been marred by the spoiling, vandalizing, corroding effect of sin. And yet God is not going to abandon his creation. God is committed to redeeming us and the world he created. And because God is committed to his creation, because he has promised to make all things new, because of the promise of a new heavens and new earth where righteousness reigns and peace rules, he must deal with all the sin that destroys and corrodes and vandalizes what he made good. You know, so many people see God's judgment and wrath as a problem. You know, something we kind of, it's like I mentioned before, it's, it's that family member you have that you don't want anyone to know about. We just, we, we, we like God, but we just don't want people to know that God has wrath or judgment. They see it as a problem. But when we understand the effects and consequences of sin and all the evil and suffering and injustice that flows in its wake, the judgment and wrath of God is not the problem. It is the solution to the problem. Because God is a just, righteous, and holy judge, he is going to deal with all the sin and the evil and suffering and injustice that flows from it because of our pride and selfishness and defiance of the human heart. And so this means two things. It means one, we need to understand as Christians, the world in this present state is not our home. Our fundamental identity as Christians in relation to this world is that we are strangers and sojourners and exiles. We are longing for the better city which is to come. So in one sense, we're not to make our home here in this world like those who do not know Christ would make their home here in this world. And yet, it also means we are to eagerly look forward to the time in which Christ makes all things new, in which righteousness reigns, in which the beauty and original order and design is not only restored, but it's even glorified. It's even brought to a place beyond what it was even in Genesis 1. And so we kind of, we, we live with those, those two, the tension of those two things. We're strangers and sojourners here, but we're also looking to the time when he makes all things new and restores all things. Well, third, the outpouring of God's judgment alerts us to the worthlessness of the idols of this world. As John describes these various bold judgments, we're not going to be able to cover each one on its own, but we'll, we'll highlight some of them. John intentionally uses language and descriptions 
that reflect the plagues that God sent upon Egypt in the Exodus. And if you caught some of that as you were looking, but let me just point out kind of where I, where I see this. So you look at the end of chapter 15, verse eight. Notice that when these are brought out, it says, no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So you, you already kind of clued into the fact that there's some connection between this and what happened in Exodus. And then as you look at some of the details described in the bulls as they're poured out, it's reminiscent of some of the plagues that God poured out on Egypt in the Exodus. Which means, to understand these bold judgments properly, we have to understand something of the significance of the plagues from the book of Exodus. So when Moses came to Pharaoh in Exodus, his demand, very simple, very clear, let God's people go that they may worship him. And Pharaoh's first response was this cynical question. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? And in the ultimate case of be careful what you ask for, God answered that question with 10 plagues, one after the other, all of them sent to help Pharaoh understand, I am the Lord. This is who I am. And this is why you should let my people go that they may serve me. And the answer in each of the plagues comes in two parts. With each plague, God on the one hand is demonstrating his greatness while at the same time showing the worthlessness of the so-called gods that Egypt worshiped. So with each plague, God says, I'm in charge of this, not that false god that you worship. You worship the god of the Nile? Well, guess what? I can make him bleed. You worship the sun god? Well, I can blot him out so he doesn't shine at all. Each subsequent plague showing the greatness of God and the worthlessness of their idols. So the reason John uses a language that reflects the plagues in Exodus is because these seven bowls serve a similar function as the plagues in Egypt. Through them, God is sending a message to the world of his greatness and supremacy as judge and sovereign over the whole world. And he is demonstrating the worthlessness of all the false gods that this world worships. So I just want to highlight a couple of them. I'm going to highlight three of them. (laughs) Notice how this is demonstrated in the first bowl. So the first bowl that's poured out in chapter 16, verse 2, this is what happens. Harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. So in Egyptian culture, think of the Exodus one. At the time of the Exodus, they had a God that they worshipped whom they believed had power over diseases, who had power to grant healing. And so when the boils and sores came on the Egyptians. It was the first plague that the Egyptian magicians could not imitate. They could do nothing about it. And what the Lord was revealing is his greatness and the worthlessness of that false god of health and disease that they worshiped. Well, nowadays in our culture, we don't have a specifically named deity who is the god of health and healing. But that does not mean we are not guilty of making a god out of health out of safety, out of all things pleasant and comfortable. In fact, I I would argue that although we don't have a shrine to the God of comfort, it is probably one of the most prominent idols that we deal with and struggle with. Now, certainly, we have to acknowledge those things are not wrong in and of themselves. Health, safety, comfort, pleasant things, they're not wrong in and of themselves, in their proper place. As Christians, we receive them as good gifts from the Lord to be enjoyed to his glory. But the issue comes when we value them more than we value the Lord, 
when we have to have them and when we can't live without them and when they define our lives for good or for ill, when that happens, they cease being a gift and then they become a God. And there are times when the Lord acts in his judgment to strike this idol down and show us that the God of health and comfort is worthless and will always disappoint. There are times when the Lord, through trials, reminds us, because we're so easy, easily prone to forget that we are fragile and life is a vapor, and that the God of health will let us down. Now the second bowl, judgment, is poured out into the sea in chapter 16, verse 3, and this is what happens. The sea became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. So the Egyptians not only worshipped a God who was kind of over the domain of the Nile, that kind of blessed that area, but for them, the Nile was their livelihood. It was their their basis for their economic well-being was, was this river that they had flowing through their country. And when the Nile was turned to blood and when all things died, the source of their economic well-being was plunged into darkness. So for them, it was as if the market crashed and the economy tanked that day. Well, we don't have a God over this or that domain of our economy, but we can make our bank accounts, we can make our financial portfolio, our business, our job success, the status of the market of such significance and prominence in our lives that it rivals the place that God alone should have. We can take whatever you would want to fill in for your economic well-being, and we can give it such a place of prominence that at times it becomes the thing that we are more devoted to, more caring about, more fearing, more trusting, more worried about than our relationship with the Lord. Again, idolatry is not always looking at something that is outright in and of itself evil. Sometimes the subtlety and danger with idolatry is we take a good thing and then we make it an ultimate thing and that becomes a bad thing. So the evil in our desire is not what we desire, it's that we desire sometimes too much. We have to have it. We can't live without it. We take good things, we make them ultimate things, and that becomes a bad thing. And so there are times when the Lord acts in his judgment, and there's a time coming when he'll act in the fullness of a judgment to strike down this idol and show us its worthlessness. And it always reminds us, when, when this, this economic idol takes place in our hearts, the Lord uses things to remind us you cannot serve God and money. You will either hate the one and love the other or serve the one and be devoted to that one. Well, let's jump down and look at this sixth bowl. This is, this is the one that usually draws the most confusion and the most questions uh, and the most uh, interesting interpretations. So the sixth bowl, verses 12 to 16, chapter 16. And before we get into the details of this one, let me, let me give a summary of what I think is the overarching point that's being made in this one. The sixth bowl presents an image and picture of rebellious humanity as an assembled army that has come together to declare war on the Lord. It's, it's kind of giving that picture of what Paul mentions in Romans 5. Romans 5, Paul mentions that by nature, because of sin, we are at enmity with God. We're not neutral. We're not at peace. We're at enmity with God. We're, we're hostile to his ways and his laws. And this is a picture of God removing his hand of restraining grace on humanity because Humanity is not as bad as it could be. There's always room for deprovement, as one theologian has said. And yet there's going to be a time where God's restraining hand of grace is removed, and humanity, as it were, assembles collectively to oppose the Lord, thinking that they can defy and defeat him. 
It's a scene that in some ways is similar to the Tower of Babel, but on a larger, more hostile scale. Because in Tower of Babel, what does humanity do? It comes together in their pride and arrogance to storm the very throne room of God, to assault the heavens, God's domain, because they're not content with the domain he has given them. And yet in the process of trying to dethrone God, what, are they, what happens? They're, they're thwarted. They're defeated. So in one sense, this battle scene picture is a picture of the idol that is behind and beneath all idols. It is the idol of self, the idol of autonomy, the idol that says, I'm in charge, you are not. That I am the master of my ship and the captain of my fate. You are not. I run things, you don't. It is the idol that in one sense was hinted at by the very first lie that the serpent gave to mankind. You can be like God, knowing good and evil. You don't have to sit under him in submission. You can be in that place yourself. At the the core of sin is always this desire to dethrone God and enthrone the self. And it's the idol which will seal humanity's collective demise. So 1612, we'll kind of work through it briefly, quickly. 1612 tells us where this kind of assembled hostile army comes from. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the king from the east. So the Euphrates River was located east of Israel and it would have reminded people of the direction that many enemy nations had traveled when they came against the people of God. So for example, Assyria and Babylon came from the east and the Euphrates River was kind of like a border that they had to go around to get to the nation of Israel in order to take them into exile. So it reminded them of the direction of kind of enemy nations coming towards them. Now, the fact that the river is dried up, so it says, and its waters was dried up, this would convince an enemy army coming from that direction that their job is going to be easy. This is going to be a walk in a park. They don't have to travel around the river. They just get to walk right through it. But for an Israelite, someone who knows their Old Testament, a dried up body of water would remind them of another dried up body of water that God used in the Old Testament. When he dried up the Red Sea so that his people could be delivered in safety and so that the enemies of God could be plunged in defeat, in judgment. And so what I think this is setting up is the fact that God is basically, as it were, laying a trap. He's opening a way for the enemy nations to make it easy to travel against the people of God. And they think they have the victory soundly in hand. And yet, they are marching into a very trap that the Lord has set. It's like Psalm 33:10. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. He turns their own counsels of hostility against them. Well, then verse 13 and 14 explains how this arrogant army becomes convinced that they can successfully march in campaign against the Lord God Almighty in war. Look at verse 13 and 14. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. So remember, one of John's purposes is always to show us that behind the scenes of what you see with your physical eyes is always this this spiritual battle, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the powers at work in this present evil darkness. And what John is showing us here is that behind the prideful defiance of this rebellious army is demonic deception. That the unholy trinity, as it were, the dragon, the beast, the false prophet, have conspired together and they've created this very convincing propaganda campaign that mankind can defy and defeat the Lord, their maker and creator. 
And the propaganda coming from the unholy trinity is like the speech of a frog. So frogs were unclean animals in the Old Testament. And if you've ever been camping out in the wilderness and you've been near a frog, you know that they are a constant string of absolute nonsense just coming out of their mouth. This is what this propaganda campaign is. It's a, it's a constant string of absolute nonsense that people buy into. And then verse 16 mentions that this battle will take place at Armageddon. Now, there's a lot of speculation about where this place is, what it's significant is. Uh, when I was in Israel, we got to visit kind of this site. And the Hebrew word for Armageddon is Mount Megiddo. So this, it's this plain um, halfway between Israel and then other nations like Assyria and Babylon. And it's significant because many of the battles in Israel's history were kind of fought in this location. It's kind of a place, you know, almost like a neutral ground where different armies could meet together. And I think the significance of this place is not because we're, we're meant to kind of kind of mark this on our maps and, and, and watch it, you know, maybe on you know webcam or something like that and see what's happening there. But it's significant because in the minds of Bible readers, it was the place where the people of God came against the enemies of God. It was a place that reminded them that they had been opposed throughout history, and yet God has preserved them even when they're outnumbered. Even when the enemies look greater and stronger than them, the Lord fought for them and gave them the victory. So the significance of these descriptions is not meant to help us unlock the secrets of World War III. This is not giving us the inside scoop on Middle Eastern political maneuvers before they happen. Okay? Revelation is not a, a code book to crack, right? It is giving us descriptions of patterns that are going to permeate history between Christ's first and second coming so that we can live faithfully, steadfastly, perseveringly as we await the return of Christ who will make all things new. The significance of these descriptions lies in how they symbolize that apart from God's restraining grace, because of the hardness of the human heart, mankind will remain committed to their hostility and their enmity and rebellion against God and will do whatever it takes to defy and defeat him, to overthrow the shackles of his sovereignty over them. In one sense, it's exactly what Psalm 2 talks about. So we're going to sing in a moment Psalm 2 in our bulletin. And Psalm 2 is all about the fact that the nations rage, they plot these designs, the kings of earth in schemes engage, rulers and plan a line against the Lord Most High and his anointed one. Let's burst apart their bonds, they cry, and their courts cast away. That humanity is collectively committed in their sin, apart from the grace of God, of, of rebelling against God and defying him. And yet the Lord sits in the heavens and he laughs. He laughs at the idol of self, the idol of autonomy, because it will ultimately be mankind's demise. Because if you look briefly at the seventh bull in verses 17 to 21, the seventh bull reveals how long this battle lasts. And it is a very short battle and all the casualties are on one side because the Lord will judge humanity and mankind in its rebellion against him. And so these bold judgments collectively, kind of zooming back out to the top, reveal the idols that often grip this world and tempt our own hearts. And they remind us to be alert to the admonition that John, the author of this book, gave at the very end of his first letter, 1 John 5.21. He signed off his letter with this, little children, Keep yourselves from idols. The last thing John says when he writes that letter is this admonition, keep yourselves from idols. Because we're always to be alert to the fact that something other than Christ can always take hold of our heart and compete with him 
for supremacy and for first place? And here's some questions even ask yourself as you seek to keep yourself from idols. What do you long for and desire more than anything? What masters and rules your motivation, your thoughts, how you spend your time, your actions? What do you look to for happiness, fulfillment, and security? Or how would you answer this question? If I only had blank, then I would be content. Now, how you answer those questions is a good indication at any given moment of what or whom you worship. And any Christian who has an accurate view of their own heart knows how fragmented and fickle it is. Right? I always, I've always said before, I think that the, the most sincere lyrics we ever sing in our kind of hymnary of corporate worship is prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave with the God I love. I think that's probably the most accurate lyrics we've ever sung in the history of San Harbor. Because from moment to moment, our heart is fragmented and it is so fickle and it goes in so many different directions, which is why I love these words from the hymn writer, William Cooper, that we should be a regular prayer for us. The dearest idol I have known, whatever that idol be, help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. That should be our prayer. One of the greatest motivations that we have as believers for keeping ourselves from idols, from dethroning anything that would rival Christ is this. Believer, you need not fear that moment when God pours out that seventh and final bowl of his wrath and says, it is done. We will not be under that bowl and that statement will not be directed at you receiving the just penalty for your sins. Why is that? Because God, who is rich in mercy and great in love, has provided a different refuge with a different statement of finality and completion for us. In the cross of Christ, Jesus stood beneath a bowl of judgment that was due for our sin that should have been poured on us. And as that bowl was emptied, what did Jesus say? In finality and completion, it is finished. There there are two statements of finality and completion that we need to reckon with. The it is finished of the cross of Christ and the it is done of the judgment of God. And I would recommend that you flee to that one and cling to that one and know that one. Because knowing the grace of the it is finished work of Christ casts out all fear of having to stand beneath the it is done judgment of God and living in the freedom and joy of the it is finished work of Christ should motivate us all the more to say, the dearest idol I have known, whatever that idol be, help me, Lord, to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. Let's pray.